Our passage for today comes from the book of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. You can find this on page 11 in your worship folder. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we reflect upon God's word. Gracious Father, now as we spend some time considering what you said to the people of Israel um, way back then and what it means for us even even today, Father, we ask that you would give us eyes and ears and hearts uh, that can be receptive. Make us people who are receptive so that we would understand, so that we'd see the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us, so that we would leave here changed, ready and willing uh, to love and serve you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. It's, it's possible that I mean, sort of Jeremiah um, is not a familiar book of the Bible to you. It's one of the longest, if not the longest, depending on how you, how you count. Um, but I suspect that for a good number of us, at least one verse within what we just read is familiar. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Some of us may know it by heart even. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. It's a powerful verse. It's a verse that has provided tremendous comfort to God's people over the centuries. It's been that for me as well at various points. But what I want us to do today is to look at this great promise of God within the context with which it was written. Because though the the verse is frequently quoted, there's a lot more to it than what, say, a 
t-shirt or a bumper sticker or a billboard can communicate. Um, This passage at times can even be understood to be communicating all sorts of things that it's not necessarily saying. And so what I want us to do is to hear this passage the way it was intended to be heard, so that we might appreciate the fullness of what God is telling these people, and so that these promises might be a great encouragement to us in our particular context. All right, so what's the context? What's the context of the passage? Who is Jeremiah, and why has he written one of the longest books of the Bible? Jeremiah was introduced back in chapter 1 um, and, and given an extremely difficult task. Describing the, the pain of a jilted lover, Jeremiah is going to confront the sin of God's people. He's going to indict their unfaithfulness in forsaking their God and going after other gods. He's going to tell them, this is what your punishment's going to be, which is this. God's going to use Israel's sworn enemies, the Babylonians, to come into their land and take them by force and scatter a great number of the people from their homes in Jerusalem to live in Babylon as strangers in a strange land. It's actually our title for today. Uh, if you flip over to the next page, you'll have a little place to, uh, to jot down some notes if you're, if you're into note-taking. Um, on page 12. Um, the title of the day, Strangers in a Strange Land. And, and in verse 4 of what we just read, we see God taking credit for all of this. Okay? Uh, it says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those... I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon may be the hands and feet physically carrying God's people elsewhere, but God makes it clear that he is ultimately the one responsible. And what we find in Jeremiah chapter 29 is Jeremiah writing to those living not in Jerusalem, but in Babylon communicating God's instructions on how they were to understand their situation as exiles, how they are to live as exiles, and finally, what their hope is to be as exiles. That's going to serve as our three points for today. Um, The situation of exiles, how they're to live as exiles, and finally, what their hope is as exiles. We'll begin today with the situation of exile. What does it mean to be in exile? Okay, Essentially, it means this. You're living in a place that's not your home. Now, I know it's summertime, right? Okay, So we think about going to a place that's not our home, and it's quite possible we think vacation. Okay, Dollywood or the beach or, or somewhere more exotic. We're, we're, we're leaving our home and going for a week or maybe even longer, to go somewhere just for fun. But in exile, something different's going on here, okay? You're away from your home for an extended period of time, not because you want to be elsewhere, but in a sense because you're stuck elsewhere, somewhere that you haven't necessarily chosen to be. In fact, it's the sort of place that you might not want to go to on your own, And in living in this place, in this different place, 
you start to encounter all sorts of cultural differences between you and those people who are around you as far as you know, what they think about the world and, and, and what they value and, and, and how they behave. Because, because fundamentally, you are different from those who are around you. And, and you don't fit in. And, and not in the, you know, sort of, isn't diversity fun kind of way of not fitting in, you know, or, um, yeah, look, look, we're different, but it's cool kind of, you know, way of not fitting in. It, it's like you're a freak show kind of not fitting in, and we hate you kind of not fitting in. And so that's the situation that these people, these exiles, are, are, are being placed into by living in Babylon. Here's what's interesting, though. As we read the New Testament, the exact same language is actually used in reference to the church. We see the experience of those living in Babylon as strangers in a strange land connected to the experience of the church. Living in the first century, and I would argue, I think it's safe to say, that throughout the history of the church, even now, even into the 21st century, we're exiles. Peter begins his letter to the church. He refers to them as elect exiles scattered. The book of James, James describes believers as scattered among the nations. The author of Hebrews connects the believer's experience with, with Abraham and his descendants, saying that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Paul even connects the experiences of believers with that of, of Israel in between Egypt and the promised land. They're wandering. They're without a home. And so this is why we can read Jeremiah chapter 29 and hear it not only speaking to those in Jeremiah's day, but speaking to us here today as well. They were exiles. We are exiles too. And I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating with God's people described as elect exiles scattered among the nations, what this means is that God's people can no longer be identified with one particular country, as was the case in in the Old Testament with Israel. The New Testament does not identify God's people with a particular nation-state, as if the, the U.S. or the U.K. or Bulgaria or even the modern-day nation-state of Israel is God's chosen nation. In the New Testament, when the word nation is used to describe the church, uh, it's used to describe the church. It's used to describe God's people, not living in just one country, but scattered, scattered throughout many countries, with their ultimate allegiance being, first and foremost, to Christ and his kingdom. It's been that way ever since Christ's ascension, It will be that way until his return, no matter when or where you've lived. And I believe this is extremely important for believers to get their minds around because it's so tempting to not think of ourselves this way, right? I mean, in 597 B.C., when these Jewish people were being taken from their homes and placed in Babylon... The next day, when they woke up, they could look around and go, wow, I'm not in Jerusalem anymore. I'm in Babylon. I can tell. I can look around. The the scenery's different, and the geography's different. This is different. 
Okay? It was painfully obvious to them. But as believers now, we haven't necessarily been deported from one place to another. So it's very easy for us to become unaware or even forget that there's a sense in which wherever we are, we are strangers in a strange land. And when we do this, when we are unaware or when we forget that we're strangers in a strange land, we're going to be very confused on how to live. Because as we talked about, if you were with us last week, what we do, how, how we live, is to come out of our story. It comes out of who we are. It comes out of how we understand ourselves and who we're called to be. This gets us to our our second point for the day, how exiles are to live. We find God's instructions on how exiles are are supposed to live in verses 5 through 9. Flip back over to page 11, if you would, uh, so you can see this. And in this calling, God's going to go after two very, very different temptations as it relates to God's people living in Babylon, okay? The first temptation, lose yourself in Babylon. These are two temptations um, for those living in Babylon on how to live. Lose yourself in Babylon, okay? It's, it's where they begin to actually think like Babylonians rather than like God's people. We'll call this assimilation. Um, God's people increasingly become like the surrounding culture. And verse 6 goes after this notion of assimilation. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters. Give your daughters in marriage so they may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. What's the deal? Why, why the concern about the population? When it talks about marrying and having children, it's not just talking about marrying anybody. It's talking about marrying other people with the same God as you people who are like you, people who believe in your God. The point is, these people are to continue to perpetuate themselves. It's possible you've heard of the the, the old parable of the the Good Samaritan. We know that story, parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, In the event that you haven't, a Samaritan, um, we talk about, you know, these super nice people who help people and all that kind of stuff. Jesus was telling that story really to, in some ways, um, expand the categories of the audience because they didn't like Samaritans. Um, Jewish people didn't like them because the history here was that a Samaritan was somebody who was of both Jewish descent but also Assyrian descent. A century before all this drama with the Babylonians, the Assyrians had already come in. They had taken a portion of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, But rather than God's people retaining their identity in the midst of all of this, they begin to have children with the Assyrians. They begin to adopt the values of the Assyrians. They ultimately became a different people altogether, the Samaritans. And so in verse 6, we see the command not to do not decrease, which is a call not to give up your identity, not to lose yourself in the culture but to retain your presence. And not only through simply like procreating, but holding firm to, to your identity, being who you are, who God has called you to be. Be who you are, living in Babylon. That's what the book of Daniel 
is all about. Live out your particular identity in the context in which you find yourself, even as, especially as, it goes against the grain. It's a good word for us as Christians, as we live in what some have labeled a a post-Christian society. I'll be honest. Um, I get a little nervous sometimes when I hear Christians talk about the culture, society, you know, the world out there. Because so often, Christians, you know, as we're lambasting the culture, we fail to see that, that what we value very well may be the same, like a different version of the same things, right? You know, power and money and status and convenience, prestige, comfort, we just made one like a, a Christian version of those things, but we still want the same things. Let's be honest with ourselves. It's not just the people out there who want that. We too want that, right? Now, if we understand that we live out of our story, the way this is supposed to work for God's people is that they understand the temptations of money and power and status, along with every aspect of what the good life is supposed to be, that, that comes out of our story. It comes out of the story uh, of people who were created in the image of God, but, but we're broken and, and we're sinful, and yet, by faith, we're united to Jesus, and, and that affects everything, everything in life. It affects how we think about you know, love and sex and marriage. That's, that's, the, that's the big one right now, right? But it also affects how we spend our time and our money, how we think about work, rest, how we take care of hurting people, vulnerable people, the needy, how we think about violence. It affects everything. We are going to understand all of those things in light of our story. And here's the point. Our story is different than Babylon's story, which has its own story, its own particular set of values, values that that very well may resonate within us, our sinful nature. And so, if, if we as Christians don't realize that we're strangers in Babylon, then it's possible, I would even say likely, that as our guard is down, we won't really notice as we begin to look more and more Babylonian. I mean, last week we, we talked about the Sabbath. Sabbath's a gift, a day set aside for our good to rest and to worship our God and to be with his people. It's supposed to be the best day of the week. Not too long ago, we lived in a culture that, that more or less shut down on Sundays, right? Because it was the Lord's Day. And to be clear, I don't believe that made us a Christian society, but it did show there were a lot of Christians there. And they were having an impact on the culture, at least as it related to, to that issue. But here's the thing. We don't live in that world anymore. American culture is no longer going to facilitate the distinct values of believers. In fact, increasingly so, they're going to provide us with a plethora of other options. Now, we can get mad that we don't live in that world anymore, the good old days. Or we can realize that it's now up to us 
to live out our particular worldview, our story, in a context that doesn't necessarily embrace it, which requires intentional living on our part. It requires saying no to the pressures to conform, not just on the the Sabbath, but on any number of things. It means holding firm to our identity rather than losing ourselves in Babylon. So that's one extreme that God's going to address, losing yourself in Babylon. But the text also addresses another extreme, which is complete separation from Babylon. All this talk about being a a distinct people might give the impression that God's people are just supposed to live out their little distinct values off by themselves, away from from the big bad world. And with these exiles forced to live with their captors, it would have been tempting just to check out of society altogether, to participate in Babylon only to the extent that, you know, you had to. And this is exactly what the the false prophets that Jeremiah addresses, he mentions them in verse 8 and 9, were telling the people to do. God had told Jeremiah that that, that the people were going to be there for 70 years. 70 These false prophets rejected that, though. Oh, it won't be that long. It won't be 70 years, so just bide your time. Bide your time till you get back home. Don't worry about investing where you are. Don't get tied down there. Just wait it out. But in verse 5, God tells the people to build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray for it, because if it, it prospers, you will prosper too. Build houses in Babylon. Plant gardens in Babylon. Promote peace in Babylon. Invest in Babylon. Pray for Babylon. God is not interested in his people detaching, separating from Babylon. Rather, he wants them to have their distinct identity living and engaging with the city. Being a force for good in the city. Perhaps you've heard the old gospel song, This World is Not My Home. You know that song? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. There's a great bluegrass version of this by a guy named Robert Earl Keane. It's fantastic. Um, But there's sort of an escapism that's about present within this song. You know, this idea of I'm just passing through here, not really going to get all tied down. And I don't think that can really be squared with Scripture. Because, yes, in, in its present state, This world isn't our home in the fullest sense of of what that means. It's not where we are to find our ultimate identity. But while we're here, and until the arrival of new heavens and new earth, Christians are called to work, to invest within the contexts that God's placed us, serving the places where, where we find ourselves, being salt and light, providing flavor and illumination to a world in need of it. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? If you were with us two weeks ago, we talked about work. We talked about the idea of, of working and investing 
where you're planted. As Christians, we're called to, to love and to serve and to invest in and to engage with the community in which we find ourselves. Not with just some generic niceness, but with the love of Jesus. With the good news of the gospel that, that changes hearts and lives. Because that's the only real hope of lasting and true peace. That's a call for us as individuals, going out, scattered. It's a call for us collectively as a congregation, too. On a larger scale, we're, we're most of us, I think, in this room are citizens of the United States of America. We're called to be good citizens, to be, even be the, the best citizens. Don't hear me for a second saying that because we are exiles, we shouldn't love and, and be even passionate about our nation, our country. Go read 1 Timothy 2. Go read 1 Peter 2. It describes how believers are supposed to live within their nations. But both of these passages emphasize the need to, to pray for our leaders, to, to, to live quiet lives, and um, to be good citizens, to love our country, serve our country, invest in our country, pray for our country. But as we seek the prosperity and peace of Babylon, there's one thing we're called not to do. It's a mistake that Christians often make. We're not to treat our country as if it's ultimate. In verse 10, we we see the time frame reiterated. Seventy years. Seventy years is what God's people have in Babylon. They're not going to be there forever. And so while they will benefit from the success of Babylon, their ultimate hope isn't in the success of Babylon. It's one of the biggest traps that Christians can fall into, whether you lean to the left politically or lean to the right politically. It's to move beyond seeking the welfare of the city and instead to try to make Babylon into the promised land. The problem with this is Babylon isn't the promised land. Babylon will always be broken and rebellious and in need of Jesus And until Jesus comes to make all things new, it won't be the promised land in the fullest sense of that. And so living in Babylon and seeking its welfare, which we're all called to do, forces us to live within a great deal of tension. We don't like tension, right? I want things clear cut, okay? This is what's right and this is what's wrong. It's easy. But living in a world with complexity, it's tough, to work for Babylon's good and yet have realistic expectations about what can be accomplished in a fallen world. To live with a certain degree of encouragement and discouragement simultaneously. Which should leave us with a holy longing for things to be made right. Because our ultimate hope isn't here. This brings us to our third and final point for the day, the hope of exiles. Which brings us back to to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. What are these plans, these plans that that this verse speaks of, these plans not to harm them, to give them a hope and a future? I mean, this verse really can be used for anything and everything as it relates to the details of people's lives, from where somebody goes to college, or who they'll marry, or what job they'll land, or where they're going to have lunch. I mean, this could apply to anything. 
right? God knows the plans, and they're going to be awesome. And then things don't turn out the way they think we think they should. And we're kind of wondering, you know, what the heck, God? Have you not read Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11? I mean, what's going on here? Now, to be clear, God does care about the details of his children's lives. But we can become frustrated with God when the details of our lives don't turn out as as we want because we've misapplied this verse to think that God has promised us our best life now, which he hasn't. Being a Christian is not about our best life now. It's about having real and meaningful hope even in the midst of what can sometimes be a very broken life. A broken life that God promises to use for his good purposes, for our good and for his glory. And that is not for a moment to trivialize pain. But it is to say that there's hope. And the hope that this passage provides is that these exiles one day are going to go home. Verse 10 When 70 years are completed from Babylon, I will come to you. I will fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And then at the end of verse 14, I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations where I've banished you. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Jeremiah 29, 11 must be understood against the backdrop of exiles living in a broken place, longing for home. A while back, I was thinking about, like, my favorite songs. You know, somebody asked you, like, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite song? I mean, like, that's, like, the most difficult question ever. There's there's lots of songs. Um, But I was thinking back to singing some of my favorites. And so many of them have a certain theme to it. It's the theme of home, of establishing a home, or going home, or longing for home. And you see this with really, I mean, I like an eclectic mix of music, okay? Folk to techno to German in like, you know, three moves. Um, I don't listen to German music, (laughs) Um, (laughs) just to be clear on that. Um, I'm not opposed, but... um, this theme of home is not specific to, like, one type of music. I mean, you got, you know, Michael Buble, Philip Phillips, those are like pop songs talking about home, John Denver, Country Roads, Take Me Home, Robert Earl Keane, I mentioned him earlier, great song, I'm Coming Home. I mean, even Ozzy Osbourne gets in on this, Mama, I'm Coming Home. Home is something that, that I would say, universally, we... We long for, we long for a place of safety, a a place of security, a place of familiarity, a place of relational connectedness. But there's one song that, that really resonates with me the most. It's a song I think that would resonate with the prophet Jeremiah. It's a song by a guy named Edward Sharp who sings this. Alabama, Arkansas... I do love my ma and pa, but not as much as I love you, 
He then goes on to say, home. Yes, I am home. Home is wherever I'm with you. Jeremiah's going to tell these people that after 70 years, they're going to go home. And sure enough, 70 years later, God does exactly that. He brings these captives back to Jerusalem. But it's important for us to see in the passage that the return in this passage is not just a return to physical land, to a geographical destination. It's a return to God himself. Once again, the reason these people are in exile, the reason they are away from their home, is because their relationship with God has been trampled on and violated due to their hard hearts, due to their sin, due to their wandering away from their home. And yet, in verse 12, we see hope. Hope for a restored relationship with God. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. These people have been running from him, pursuing other gods, pursuing other homes, will return to him, will seek after him, will be found by him. What's changed? Well, the text tells us. What's changed is their hearts. Their hearts have been changed. And it's this heart change that Jeremiah will speak to a couple of chapters later. Jeremiah 31. It was a long assurance of pardon today. Some of that may have been kind of like, what is this? But that's the promise in Jeremiah 31. The time is coming that I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. I'm going to put my law in their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their wickedness. I'll remember their sins no more. In the midst of all the judgment, and Jeremiah is 50 chapters, there's a lot of judgment. There's also hope. There's hope for a restored relationship with God. And it's so important to point out, as you go back, if you go back and look at verse 31, or chapter 31 of Jeremiah, it's important to point out who's doing the restoring of this relationship. God says, I will make a new covenant. I will put my law on their hearts. I will forgive their sin. I will remember their iniquity no more. I will bring them home. I will bring them back to myself. And the way that God accomplishes this is through his son, who left his home. Seated at the right hand of God, he took on flesh and lived away from his father. Charles Wesley put it this way, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, For, oh my God, it found me. Jesus came to this world to be an exile, to be the ultimate stranger in a strange land for us, for God's people, to bring us home, home with our Father. And so when Jesus, on the night before his death, raises the cup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood, 
He's fulfilling Jeremiah 31, this promise to restore a broken relationship by paying for their sin through his blood and changing their hearts by his spirit, giving people heartfelt obedience, leading them to come to God, to seek God, to find God. And he invites anyone who will come, anyone who would come, to come home. God made us. He loves us. He redeems us and promises to one day bring us home in the fullest sense of that. And this is the hope we have. It's the hope that we can experience even now as we wait, as we live as exiles, seeking to be faithful as God's called us to, as we long for home. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you have not abandoned your people. Even, Lord, as we uh, are so often unfaithful, and yet you sent your Son to live in our place and to bring us home. May we, as, as people who you're drawing unto yourself, come and, and find rest, find the security, find the love and the affection that you have for us. And as we approach this, your table, may we experience that so that we might leave here um, knowing of who we are, knowing that we're loved, and knowing of our future, our hope, because of what you've done on our behalf. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.